you are now tuned in to the Humane Roundup Podcast with your hosts, Ashley Bishop and Daniel Ettinger. Good day, Bishop. Good morning. Good morning. How does it feel now that we met in person, now we can actually talk? Like, I, you know, like this is different. It is a little bit different. You now have a work wife. <laughs> People, if you don't know, I got bossed around all conference. <laughs> Knocks on my door at 8.30 in the morning, like, get out of bed. You told me you were going to be down there at (laughs) 8. I did. I did. I did. Didn't work out that way. You know, conference conference life. Great conference. Shout out to Texas Animal Control Association. Wonderful time. Great people. Great classes. All the good stuff. Fantastic on the side conversations. Yeah. And tune in for some stuff that's coming soon. Uh, regarding those on the side conversations, yeah. so big shout out. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we have to do some sad news this morning because yeah, we we had a we had a I guess you could say unofficial host of this podcast named Pipsqueak, who you would often hear in the background. Yeah, one of uh, one of the listeners at the conference actually stopped me to ask to see some pictures of him. Um, so he was seeming to all of a sudden lose a lot of weight very, very quickly. Um, in which case, you know, starting to notice, I realized he actually wasn't eating for a couple of days, get him into the vet, did his blood and the vet's like, yeah, it looks like maybe he's got some kidney stuff going on. Let's, let's start doing fluids, which whatever I can do those at home. Um, let's do some fluids. Let's get him on some kidney food and we should be able to get him back. He was 15 years old and within 45 minutes to an hour of bringing him home, ready to do all of the things we had to do, he died. So, well, Rest in peace, little guy. We know how hard it can be. I mean, it's just, it's something that we deal with on a day-to-day basis in the field. And so I think some people probably compartmentalize death differently, depending on, you know, your experiences with it. And, you know, we, we know it's got to be hard for you and your family. So we want to just say, uh, you know, well, when I found out, you know, I reached out right away and it's just, it's not easy. So. No. And, you know, we, we've, talk about euthanasia a ton on the podcast and he was our fifth animal in the last oh I don't know uh probably close to six years or so that we've lost um the other four were euthanasias one of them was a hey get him in yeah, things aren't looking good. He's got a couple different things. Okay, we're going to choose to put him down. Um, but we, we still were able to make that choice. And I always said I'd be, I'd rather my pets go at home surprisingly. I take that back. I, I take that back because we didn't have the opportunity to be there to... Um, have a little bit of a choice. Um, I would much rather actually be able to make that decision. 
well, you know, it's, it's tough no matter how it happens. And so we, yeah. we appreciate you sharing the story. And I know for our listeners, we, we have two new cats that'll start making noise here in the <laughs> next few episodes. I think you just had to kick one of them out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> trouble. He was, he, trouble was, yeah, he was, you know, being trouble. So, all right. Well, I know that's not the, the way we really want to kick off episode 152. Uh, wow. I know it's a lot. Wait, of are we counting so, each one of the side nah, episodes? We don't count. We don't count bonus, oh. nah, bonus episodes don't count. They're just bonus. But there's definitely bonus episodes to go out there and check out. We had some fantastic conversations at the conference. Great conversations. Uh, honestly, the, the ones in person just seem to, to hit a little differently. So check those out. Go back and check out all the bonus episodes that that you may have missed. And, uh, you know, reach out. We have some new stuff coming in 2023, and we'll talk about that in the next few weeks. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's sure. bring our guest on. I think it's important that we just jump right in, try to get past some of that sadness and talk about some yeah. some fun fun law stuff. Everybody loves talking about law. Let's introduce Jessica Rubin, the Associate Dean for the, uh, I think it's the University of Connecticut's Law School Animal Law Clinic. Is that is that right, Jessica? That's right. That's right. So I'm the Associate Dean for Experiential Education at UConn Law School, and I, I also direct our Animal Law Clinic. Nice. For our... So, for our listeners now, when you say that, what is an like what's an animal law clinic? What does that mean? So there are several different models for animal law clinics across the country. Some clinics exist to handle uh, litigation. Our clinic exists to staff cases in which courts have appointed advocates under Connecticut's Desmond's Law. So all of our clinic work is handling cases in which we've been appointed by courts as the advocate for the animal victim in cruelty cases. And when we talk about Desmond's Law, I think, you know, I did some research, Bishop should, should, did too. And if if you don't mind, just walk us through how Desmond's Law was created, you know, from a cruelty case and, and what your impact was on all that. Sure, happy to. Um, so I've been teaching at UConn Law School for about 25 years, and most of those years I've taught a class in animal law. And every year when I got to a certain point in the course where we would talk about criminal cases and criminal law, uh, I would invite a colleague of mine who was a state legislator, Representative Diana Urban, to come and speak to the class. And we would kind of scratch our heads at the statistics that our state had kept that showed an awful lot of animal cruelty cases were being dismissed. And we thought about what we could do about that, right, to help that process and to have the cases get the attention that we thought they deserved. And I kind of thought about what was in my, people talk about sphere of influence. And we thought, well, how about if we ask courts to appoint students to be advocates for the animals? And that'll kind of shine a light or bring attention on the cases and it won't cost anyone anything. Students will get to do the work. They'll get credit. They'll get supervision and great training. The courts will get a little bit of, of an extra resource in handling the cases and hopefully the cases will get more attention. And so Representative and, uh, Urban and I kind of put our heads together, suggested the statute, and then she shepherded it through the legislature. It took three attempts to get it through. And I think the reason why it passed was because the public really was ignited by a case of animal cruelty in which the defendant uh, 
beat, starved, and eventually killed um, his dog and applied, you know, when he was charged with animal cruelty, in his case, he applied to use what's called a diversionary program, which basically means if you don't get in trouble again for one or two years, then the case gets dismissed, the charges are cleared from your record. And people were very upset that Desmond's abuser was allowed to use a diversionary program. And I think it really excited people enough to really make their voices heard at the legislature so that on the third try, Desmond's law was passed. So how many states do you know have something that allow for this, for for somebody to be the, the voice of the animal? So Connecticut was the first uh, state to enact such a law. Maine passed its own version called Frankie's Law, again, uh, af- named after another tragic animal cruelty case. So Maine is right now the only other state that has a law permitting what we call Courtroom Animal Advocate Program, C-A-A-P. So I'm going to, for the rest of the show, call them CAPS. Um, that's the more generic, you know, in Connecticut, it's Desmond's Law, but to make it more generic to use in every state, we're calling them CAPS. So right now, Connecticut is the only law that's been actually used. Maine has the law, but they haven't had a case yet to use the law. Um, And then unofficially, there are a couple of programs in the country. I know um, there's one that runs without a law, without a statute. It's just sort of an unofficial program through the Onondaga County Courts um, that's run by an individual there where he advocates for animal victims. But right now it's Connecticut and then Maine. But I will also add... Bishop. (laughs) Because <laughs> they keep the it humane. humane. <laughs> Jessica, I, I will, you, you had something I, else to add. Sorry. I just want to add that I get probably one call every two weeks from individuals in other states interested in doing their state version of Desmond's Law. So I'm hopeful that it proliferates. I know in Colorado, there was some talk about getting it done, maybe through the University of Denver. I don't know if you have any experience with that. Um, I will also talk about, uh, can I, I want your feedback on this. And so on the show, we, we really try to come at it from all angles and, and we, we clearly, you know, brought you on cause we want to learn more, but I also want to understand there's been some pushback on it that uh, people don't want it. So animal control or uh, certain agencies do not necessarily think that Desmond's law is a necessarily a good thing for the courtroom. Can you talk on that a little bit on why there might be that pushback or that reasoning of, of why somebody wouldn't want this in their, you know, in their courtroom? Sure. And I could certainly understand the concern that people already in the profession, you know, of animal control have. Our experience with ACOs in Connecticut has not been, it has not supported that. Our ACOs have really been so happy about the involvement of an advocate in the case, because what it does is it makes sure that the amazing work that each ACO has done in handling their case and documenting it doesn't fall on the floor, right? It makes sure that there's another person responsible to making sure, for making sure that the case doesn't get dismissed or get overlooked um, and so 
the ACOs in, in our state have really seen it as a way to amplify their voices. And on a very practical point, not every ACO can take time off to attend court hearings. And so there have been times where we've been sort of the, the voice for the ACO and you know can report on the ACO's position on certain things. Um, sometimes court is very casual. And if an ACO can't make it, and, and I say to a judge, the ACO just texted me their position, the, the judge will say, please read that into the record. Um, so sometimes we're there simply to be there for the ACO. You know, there are times when a case will take, will wait around all day and we can text the ACO when the case is going to be called. So they don't have to take a full day off of work in just an hour. So, so how is it different than just the prosecutor? Like how, like, are you working in conjunction with the prosecuting attorney? Like how, no, what is, we are really yeah, the, what is the role? So we serve the court and we're not aligned with the prosecution. We're not aligned with the defense. And so our role is really, I, I kind of think of it as a, a three-part hybrid. We are one part, what I call special master, there to provide additional information to the court that they might not otherwise have. That information could be facts, like from an ACO or from a veterinarian, and it can also be law. Like if, if issues come up that need some research, or if a judge wants to hear how other courts in the state have handled the same issue, we are there to provide legal and factual information. So we're part part special master. We're also one part victim advocate. We explain to the court what has happened with the animal, where the animal is right now, what the animal needs right now, and what, in the opinion of a vet, the animal might have experienced in the case. And the third part of our role, I like to say, is like a case manager or social worker. Sometimes we're there to help a defendant get services or goods that will help them maintain their relationship with the victim animal if the crime was not serious. So there have been cases where we've gotten free dog training or a donation of fencing in order to help a defendant keep their animal. So those are the three facets of our role. And I don't think any prosecutor has the time to get that deep into any case, let alone an animal case. So we're really there to help the court handle this case. So we actually had, I did it, Dan. <laughs> you've, you, you've done it seven times already on this episode in person in person you were fine sorry jessica we have this thing um i was I literally everything to, was so i was about to text her a giant so so but in person you were great you i don't you got to channel that in person stuff all right back clearly to the we clearly we just need to be in person all the time anyway i'm sorry <laughs> um so i <laughs> I was able to participate in a class uh, at the conference regarding the these laws and things like that. Um, is it was my understanding from the class that the judge has to request the services that you guys are providing, or did I misunderstand that? So the judge is the one who actually orders the court the the appointment because we're a court appointed advocate. But the request can come from either the state, you know, the prosecutor, the defense, the advocate themselves. But the request is submitted to the court so that the court can make the appointment. Okay. And you're privy to all of the discovery. You get everything? That depends. We get what relates to the defendant's treatment of the animal. But if, for example, there's information about a defendant's psychiatric condition or um, 
family violence issues that extend beyond the offenses charged regarding the animal, then we wouldn't ask for or, or receive that, that information. Okay. And just to clarify, that includes uh, minors. You know, we haven't had a, a case involving a minor. So I, I'm not sure actually how the court would handle that. You know, I'm sure information could be redacted, um, but it would be very hard for an advocate to do their job without information that related to the acts against the animal. So I'm not sure how it would ha- how it would unfold in a case of a minor. How do you feel that it's going so far? Like, what is your take on the overall success of the program? Well, that's a really great question because I think it's really hard to define success in terms of a case outcome, right? Like, do we measure it by convictions? No, because that's not what we're all about. So my gut tells me we are making a difference in that I know firsthand that we're getting earlier relief in cases and also more detailed case outcomes. So by that, I mean, having an advocate appointed early in a case allows the advocate to make requests about protective orders and surrender. And these I see as the most immediate and necessary things that an advocate can do, right? We're not going to send a defendant home to the household with the victim animal, or if that animal is dead, to a household with other animals. So we do ask pretty early, you know, of course, depending on the facts, but if the facts warrant it, we ask that the defendant surrender other animals, surrender the victim animal, um, not have contact with animals, be ordered to not be alone with animals, you know, whatever the facts of the case justify. So I know that we have been successful in getting those kind of relief earlier in cases than before. So in that sense, I think it's going well. I also think it's going well in terms of getting more attention on these cases and getting courts to sort of acknowledge and, and see and think about the animal as a victim, not just as what the animal is technically under the law, which is a piece of property, but yep. by having an advocate or a lawyer for the animal victim, I'm hoping that the court is starting to sort of pay different attention, not more or less, but different kinds of attention to these cases to say, this is a, a special thing because this victim is alive, sentient, and has changing needs, right? If we just stick them in the pound for the 18 months Yikes. that this case is going to take. Don't use the pound anymore, Jessica. Okay. The <laughs> municipality or whatever. It's an animal you know. shelter. Um, and that's Anyways. something that's something no, we've no, been able I to. Think that, I think it's important to talk about that really quick because that just that's your terminology. And, and I think in the aspect of as we grow as a profession, part of what you're doing is to bring, I think, awareness to the severity of these cases and, and the, the role that our community plays. And so in that same aspect, when we use terminology like the pound, it's not giving, it's not giving us the appropriate, I think, designation that we deserve as a community. And so I try, I try to bring awareness to that stuff all the time that that's an outdated term that we just don't use anymore. Cause it's not, it's not what we do. Fair point. And, you know, I also acknowledge that some shelters are great and some shelters aren't great. But even in the great shelter, it's not a place for an animal to be long, long term. And it's so, not home. right. And one thing an advocate can do is help to facilitate getting that animal 
moved on. You know, whether it's humane euthanasia or rehoming, whatever's in the animal's best interest. Uh, in Connecticut, we have a civil forfeiture statute so that, um, you know, it, while the, the criminal case is pending, there is a mechanism for the municipality to take title to that animal, but sometimes it's not done. Sometimes animal control officers don't know about the law or they don't have the support of their municipality to file the paper, paperwork to start that process. And sometimes having an advocate can kind of, you know, we've given municipalities forms to use. Like here, here are the forms, do the civil forfeiture, and then the animal can go on with its, you know, whatever its fate holds. But um, so that's another role that an advocate can play is to help to facilitate that change of title. Is there, so you said that there's a lot of other contacts that you've been having. How do, how do we as a state go forward? It has to get into state statute that this is, that these advocates are allowed. Is that what I'm understanding? So actually it's a really interesting point. Um, That's sort of the most official and direct route to create one of these programs is to find a legislator who is willing to take on this cause and introduce, you know, a a bill to create a program like this. But short of that, you know, it's interesting to think about whether a program like this could just be created within a particular court, right? like, Like they've done in Onondaga County, New York, to create a program and pilot it. And if it's a success, then it makes further legislation easier to, to introduce. Um, so I, I actually don't think a statute is necessary. Um, I don't know how much a court would be willing to do short of having a statute, but I think it's, it's a possibility to think about creating a program on a you know, county basis or court basis without necessarily a state statute. How long has Onondaga been been doing it then? Is it long enough, you think, that we can use it as an example? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been more than five years. Oh, wow. Can I ask, too, like the, the, the concept or the idea of, what, I guess, why it's beneficial? And so going back to your previous statements... I can just say, can I tell you how many cases I've had dismissed or pled down without any sort of follow-up from the prosecutor and how frustrating as an as an animal control officer it is to put a bunch of work in, right, and even make recommendations. So that's something that we did with the courts where we would basically send over, hey, this is what we, we would like to see happen. We understand that it's not always the case, but we would send recommendations in as well. And then to have those those cases just be dismissed, it's so frustrating. So can you talk a little bit, Jessica, about your connection and communication with the officer? You said earlier you would text and, and have conversations with them. And so how do you interject? How does it work in the court case when the prosecutor's like, well, we moved to dismiss. Can you, can you object and say, well? Yes. Yes, we can bring a third perspective in there. And it's it's tough, to be honest, when the defense lawyer and the prosecutor are arguing that the case should be dismissed. And but, that, but that's where our role may be different from the prosecutors. And we could say 
this is what the advocate believes. And we've been in touch with the animal control officer and this is their position. And here's why. And here are the photos that they took. Um, And here's another opinion from a veterinarian. And so, you know, especially when students are in the the position of the, the advocate, they have a lot of time and resources to do this kind of research and, you know, track down information and photos and that kind of stuff. So it's a way for us to bring a third perspective and a little bit more information that may not be available otherwise. Is there any work with the animal legal defense? Uh, I was going to say fun, but I'm like, is that right? Um, ALDF.org. There you go. Yeah. Is there any work with them to try to get this more widely known and and recognized? That's going to be a big fat nope. Why why do you say no? From what I've heard, that's a no, but tell me more. My answer is a big fat yes. Um, okay, so cool. ALDF has really <laughs> ALDF this is has what really, makes good radio. <laughs> um, ALDF has embraced CAPS as one of its you know legislative priorities, and in fact, they're supporting our clinic this year so that we can work on writing state specific guides to be at, you know to inform people how to be an advocate in their state. And so ALDF has really stepped into this space, embraced this concept, as far as I know, um, and are working really closely with us. You know, it's a big part of their education. You know, they, they give programming on how to enact CAPS, what, what CAPS are, and um, they've been very supportive, even in individual cases, when we come up against a particular legal issue, sometimes we turn to them for, for data or for for research help, and they've been really supportive uh, this year in terms of taking what we've accomplished in Connecticut and expanding it to other states and, and really spreading information. So again, they're supporting our creation of these multi-state guides. So where yes, will those wrong. guides be available? Uh, <laughs> was... Well, we know you're wrong. We know you're wrong. That's beside the point. So, you know, our hope is as states enact laws or programs that will have guides either ready for the already ready or in progress so that we can hand it off. So we're, you know, looking at Maine now and then kind of going to focus on states that seem ripest for enactment of this kind of law. Okay. Outside of just the legal aspect, right? How do we get these people exposed? So like my, my thought process is if we're using students, et cetera, like they, they need to see both sides, right? So they need to have the legal piece, but they also need to get their feet wet, if you will, boots on the ground. They need to work with officers. You can't just put them in a courtroom and expect them to be able to do this without having that. Like, I think they have to have that genuine feel for what an officer goes through. So how can we get mm-hmm. them more exposed to that life, right? The the so and what I'm saying about this, Jessica, is like, you know, I can we could sit here and dissect easily ten cases that didn't have a favorable outcome based on the work we put into it, and that really had yeah. nothing to do with the officer. It had everything to do with the docket, right? The ability to just plea it out and, and keep it moving, right? So how do we educate this next line? Because this is brand new, right? This is something yeah. that hasn't really been done before uh, on a a major scale. So how do we do that? 
So the first thing that I train my students to answer when they get a case, when we get a case in our clinic, the first question is, where's the animal? Right? Is the animal still at home? Is the animal in the shelter? Is, you know, and the first thing we do to answer that is we call the ACO. So like from the start in a case, our students and volunteer lawyers, I should back up and say the law allows advocates to be either law students or pro bono lawyers. So the first point of contact that we have is the ACO. And so long as the, you know, the ACO can talk, speak to the case, speak to the animal, then that's going to be like a mutually beneficial relationship, right? It's going to be our source of information. We're going to be able to translate that information into court. And, you know, the, the passion that a particular officer brings to a case is only going to get translated in the courtroom, right? So if my if a student or an advocate hears that this is a really awful case for the following reasons, then that equips the student to say to the court, this case shouldn't be dismissed for the following reasons. So it it's really like a relationship that, as you said, they, that they need to understand from the start and that we are there really to serve the ACO's you know, to, to really build on their work, stand on their shoulders. And, you know, we wouldn't have a role to play in these. We couldn't fill our role in these cases without the input from ACOs. Is there any possibility of having the students do a ride along? I don't know, Dan, if you do them, but I know I yeah, do ride alongs. That's my point is, is Jessica, we need to get them, because the way they relate more to an officer is to to see through the officer's eyes. And so a phone call may be fine for some, but like we got to get them dirty, right? We got to get them out in the community through that aspect of, you know, spending four hours in a truck or even this, like, even if they don't do that, like meeting one-on-one, uh, not just over the phone. It's a great point because a lot of, some of the ancillary programming that we do in our clinic is, you know, training ACOs on best practices in courtroom stuff or animal advocacy. Um, but I think it needs to go both ways. You're right. And we need to train our students and our advocates, myself included, on aspects of the ACO's job. Well, I'll be happy to come out and talk to your class um, and, and really give them that <laughs> you know, boot on the ground feel. Cause as you know, I don't hold back. That's a good and bad thing. Double-edged sword. Uh, you know, in the aspect of, I want to kind of switch into a different conversation along the same terms. What is your thought process on the actual sentencing? What are you, what are you, what are your think? Wow. Let's try that again, Bishop. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about, uh, mental health, you know, like basically mental health treatment versus jail time? Do you feel jail time is appropriate? If so, when, when not? Uh, and then how do you feel about like, you know, putting people depending on the type of crimes on do not adopt lists nationally, like they can't own pets, etc. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked about that. I So here in Connecticut, we have what I called earlier diversionary programs. And so the standard for 
being able to use a diversionary program is that the offense charge needs to be not serious. So when a crime is serious, I believe that it should not, you know, the defendant shouldn't be eligible to use a diversionary program and they should go forward with the case and eventually sentencing. One of the things that our clinic is working on is to build a diversionary program specifically for animal cruelty offenders. So this would be for non-serious animal cruelty crimes, and it would offer targeted therapy, right? And so it would actually try to help people, again, non-serious crimes. What Um, is the definition of serious? It's not defined in the statute. So this is a lot of what we do is we make recommendations to the court about applications for diversionary programs. And we, we may look at, you know, one person's actions as serious. The defense counsel might say they're not so serious as to preclude the, the program. Um, so that's a lot of the conversation that we have in court, you know, what counts as, as serious. Um, there are certain offenses that our statutes define as too serious to qualify for the program, but animal cruelty is not by definition, ineligible for the program. It's not automatically eligible and not automatically ineligible. So it's subject to, to conversation. So I do think that for certain defendants who are assessed as having mental health problems and for crimes that are not so serious, I do feel like that, that mental health assessment and treatment is an appropriate outcome, either in lieu of a sentence or as part of a sentence. And again, it would just depend to me on the crime charged and the person's mental health, you know, psychiatric condition. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, think about it in this way, like if you have a simple neglect case where someone, maybe it's just misinformation or an accumulation of things versus like aggravated cruelty where someone beats the crap out of an animal. Those are two different mind frames in my opinion and so like if someone's going to commit a violent crime against the animal you should probably sit in jail for a little bit that's just my opinion now is there a mental health component of that sure absolutely but you still should sit in jail for a little bit if you want to harm an animal intentionally that's just my overall take i think there's a a punitive aspect to that you know appropriately so but i think there's also a community safety aspect of it you know if somebody commits a violent act towards an animal you know i i have concerns about interacting with that person, you know, in general in society. And to your point about a public registry, you know, I know that there are questions about the enforceability of that, but one, one way to accomplish that is if somebody has a a conviction on their record, right, they have a, a conviction, it's actually, it's available to the public. And I think before I bring someone into my house, for example, to be hired as a pet sitter or a dog walker or a home health care aide, I would like to know. I would like the transparency to be able to to know that that person committed certain acts, right? And one Absolutely. way to notify, sh- short of a registry, one way to put that information out there to, a pu- to the public is by having a, a conviction. Absolutely. But I think, in, go ahead, Bishop, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there, there's the whole concept there too of animal abuse being a gateway, if you will, to other things. Oh, and absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, Other crimes, interpersonal yeah. violence, all that stuff. And and the problem there is that, and we've talked about it before, is great. It There's actually, NCIC actually, you know, monitors that. If a sworn officer does the report and charges it out. Um, so that's definitely something we see too, is that not all of them are being recorded because we are not sworn officers. We don't qualify for those reports to be turned over. So I am sworn. I'm not post-certified. They're two different nice. things. It's, too, it's just, there's so much confusion in our profession and I think what you're doing, Jessica, and what the clinic's doing, et cetera, uh, truthfully, I think is the step, the right step in the right direction. And I, I want to applaud you for that. And, and that's the thing is our goal on the show, even when I'm wrong, is to help, is, is, <laughs> is to really help. It does. Is to help change the image of our profession as a whole. And so we're grateful for you coming on and talking about Desmond's Law and, and, all the actions that you're taking place. And, and this is probably going to be something that we see more and more in our, in our community over the next I few hope, years. And I was going to say, I hope to, I wish I knew though, had a better perspective of those that are against it. I don't understand that. Yeah. I, I so that's, Dan, have you that, talked to anybody? Cause I don't well, understand and, why they yeah, be against this. Let's, and that's a good point. And Jessica, when I said ALDF, was against this. I may have heard things from someone that that that's why I thought that way. Um, and I didn't just make that up on my own accord. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure exactly why they may have thought that way and why there was a connection to the, the ALDF. However, um, there, there has been some feedback. So I'll, I'll use this as an example. This is a great example. I like, I like being able to do this now. When I was with my last agency, I was working on a project with Denver University. And I had to jump through a bunch of hoops, a bunch of hoops to be able to work on this project. And the project, all it is, is alternative, basically alternative ways to look at animal cruelty, right? So the project had nothing to do with Desmond's Law, but the department that I worked at thought that it did and was staunchly, I like that word, staunchly opposed to the idea of having advocates in the courtroom. And Why? so much so. so uh, I can, I can yeah, answer. Please. I can. Yes. So the two, because you were wondering earlier, you know, who would be opposed? So the two points of opposition that I've encountered to CAPS are number one, from the animal control officer, law enforcement community, who, you know, we talked about this earlier, you know, feels like this is their job. And as I said, that has not been the experience at all in the HCO community in Connecticut. The second point of opposition is that is based on the basically broken state of our criminal justice system that, you know, it disproportionately impacts defendants of color and defendants who have mental health issues. Um, and, you know, my, my response to that is, yes, I agree that the criminal justice system is broken, but to take one area, one group of crimes and say, well, we're not going to treat them because of the overall problems in the system to me is unfair, especially when that group of crimes is the, the group of crimes that have voiceless victims. And so I, 
I, I don't really agree with the, I don't agree with the idea that because the system as a whole is flawed, we shouldn't respect and treat these this one category of crimes. Right? I'm going to make a point and then I, I have a question. So I think part of it, Jessica, is this. Certain people in our profession have insecurities. I'm just going to put it out there like that. So they don't want somebody else to come in and be able to dissect their work and, and expose some of their miss, whatever the dang word is, misfortunes is not the right word, but like miscalculations or, or areas that they did not succeed. So errors. Yeah. If you don't support this, I feel like it comes from this idea or this concept of, well, I don't need anybody else telling somebody what, what to do. Like it, it just comes back to ego in my opinion. And I could be wrong, but from the out, if I'm looking at it from the outside, that's what it looks like to me is they don't want anybody else's opinion on their case. I fully, fully appreciate what you're doing. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to continue to move this case forward as far as animal welfare in this country and really getting the right outcomes for the animals, for the people involved, et cetera. Can you talk, is this, is this modeled after anything in childcare? Like, is there advocacies for, you know, infants that can't talk? Like how is this, is this its own type of, I guess, type of courtroom thing? Or is there other, other types that it's molded after? Sure. It shares. Yeah. So it, it shares features with a victim's advocate, you know, for a human victim program with guardian ad litem for child advocacy, you know, it shares features of those, but it, it really was modeled not on any of those, but just on its own, you know, this is a problem and this is a solution we can come up with. Now in implementation, sometimes we borrow things from those different areas and we say, well, the victim's advocate office in Connecticut does X. So we're going to do X, but that's been more um, implementation practice, but the statute itself and the program that we, we created was really built just to solve a problem or to address a problem. Uh, Speaking to that, is there any laws for the human side of victim advocacy? Just kind of going back to talking about whether or not we need a state statute, is there laws that require it for humans? Yeah. So in in Connecticut, it's part of our state constitution, actually, that um, crime victims have certain rights to participate in the process, you know, rights like prompt notification and the ability to be informed of the uh, process, the ability to participate in the process by speaking to the court. So uh, those are our state-specific rules regarding victims' advocate, you know, victims' participation, and they are um, entitled to use an advocate who is somebody who can speak to them about the process, speak for them if they wish. Um, so each state has its own model of victim advocacy participation and, and laws. Just to clarify, just to understand, if you were able, if you were able to look at it from the other perspective in your eyes. Like, just give me a reason why it would be bad. Why a cap law would be a bad thing? Yes, please. Is it play devil's advocate? (laughs) Yeah. So if I'm an animal control officer, I would say 
I got this. It's my job to advocate for the animal. And I don't need somebody looking over my shoulder and speaking to the court. Not to say um, you're I, saying this. I'll use my words. Ego. Okay. And to, to the other point about, um, you know, d- the criminal justice system and its flaws, I might say nobody should be in prison, right? Incarceration is a bad thing and it disproportionately impacts people of color. And therefore, we don't need, for this class of crimes, we don't need one more party in the courtroom trying to make sure that that these defendants who have committed animal cruelty or who are charged with committing animal cruelty should face consequences, a range of consequences that sometimes include incarceration, but sometimes don't. But we don't think that because the whole system is flawed, we don't think that these cases should receive extra attention and extra advocacy. Mm. Yeah, I know specifically there are some people that just don't think jail is an option, period. So, yeah. I, I don't this know. Is a t- this I is find, a tough episode, I, yo. This I, is I tough. find this whole thing frustrating because as somebody who has had felony cases dismissed, um, bad, bad felony cases dismissed, I would love to work with somebody who knows the legal system better than I. Yes, I've been doing this for 10 years, but I know the legal system as far as what I can charge somebody with. I don't know the legal system as far as what the outcomes of those charges could be, or if there's additional charges or, you know, how to maybe appropriately speak to um, other attorneys and the judges and be able to get those ideas across to them that this is bad, which is what, where I think the advocate would be fantastic, especially if these are you know, law students and people that are studying for this specifically, they're going to be able to articulate that better than I can. And so if they're willing to work with me, I can express, tell them, you know, here's why this case was bad. I can show them my body camera. They can get a feeling for it and be able to present that in a way that a judge and another attorney is going to understand. I I don't understand. (laughs) I think it's fantastic. I think it is absolutely fantastic what you are doing and what Connecticut is doing. And I really hope that we can get this countrywide. Thank you. I I do too. And a great thing about a cap is that it can really adapt to each state's needs and styles and, and procedures. So it's not this uniform law, uniform program. It, it really can meld to or mold to the needs and the practices in every state. So if we have a state where animal control officers are legally trained and allowed to speak in court, well, then maybe the the cap is not so necessary in that state. If we have a state that has a dedicated animal cruelty prosecution court or, or prosecutor, then maybe we don't need a cap there. 
But in other states, and especially where an ACO may be new to their job and not as comfortable with court processes as, as you are, this is just another layer to make sure that these cases don't fall through the cracks. You that hit it right on the head. Fantastic point. Yeah. Yep. You hit it. So, Jessica, here's the thing. I've known officers that have been doing this job five years, six years, and never have testified. And so one of the things that I think is important is we do like in training, we do mock trials, but then having somebody that they can lean on. So like recently someone had a court case and they reached out to me and and I just, I walked them through it. I was like, Hey, like be first and foremost, be yourself, you know, be likable for the jury be honest, factual, et cetera. And then we walked through some of the case specifics. And I think that's really important to have. And, and so it's, a, I appreciate that that's one of the other aspects that you bring to the table. And I want our listeners to know that they can find you at law.ucon.edu. So they can go to that website and we'll put it in the show notes, law.ucon.edu. And then your web, your website, your email address is also located on your page that they can find through the the person, et cetera, faculty stuff. Uh, so we'll put that in the show notes, just in case somebody wants to reach out and say like, Hey, can you help with this? Or we're thinking about doing this, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well now, think, Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and I think the point of not having a prosecutor dedicated to animal stuff, I know I don't. So yeah. And I'm sure a lot of places don't because, again, not everybody's taking these cases seriously. So, that, yeah. I'm going to start repeating myself. Just, Jessica? It's a good thing. <laughs> yes. Can I take you out of law- lawyer mode? Have I been in lawyer mode? <laughs> well, yeah, you're an attorney. Absolutely. It's, uh, <laughs> That's what y'all do. Um, it's part you, of me. I can't separate. Yes, you can. Because right now you just did. Your personality is shining. <laughs> what kind of pets do you have? Oh, so I have currently two dogs, one of whom is 17 and a half years old. Wow. We adopted we adopted him last year from the pound. Oh. He, he was found with his deceased owner and landed in the pound. So he's... Um, yeah, so he's just been a joy, and you know we're just trying to make his, you know, last couple of years with us as sweet as possible. What and then I love that. I love that. Um, it's a a mixed breed. He's got to be a small dog if he's that old. He's actually sixty pounds. <gasps> he's a he's and, a pity. He's a pity. And had, had never <laughs> ever see, had never seen a vet before. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh. So he's he's an intact old man and he just is the love of our lives. And then I have another love of my life. I have a 90 pound shepherd mix of something and she's um, completely accepting of him from the day they met. She just, maybe because he's intact, maybe because he's old, but and he, he has probably really and- bad dad jokes, like dog jokes. He probably walks <laughs> in and says some. St- she's just like, whatever. Kind of like you just did. <laughs> yep. Well, his name is his name is Morty. Uh, not that it matters because he doesn't hear anything. Um, <laughs> and her name is Holly because we got her on Halloween about nine oh, years oh. ago. And um, yeah, they they uh, they're good. And we recently lost our third dog, who was oh, also wow. very 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 old. So uh, I love the seniors. They're easy. Uh, until the end and i just i really love seeing your dogs that's my thing They're fun yeah that's no, awesome because cool. a lot of people don't 
take on the seniors. So that's awesome that you were able to go to the shelter and, and do that for a senior pet. Yes. I did not go to the pound. I went to the shelter where I volunteered. (laughs) (laughs) I volunteered to walk dogs there. And um, this was really the first dog that I could handle. Most of them are just really strong, big pit bulls. And it was hard to to be a good volunteer and walk them. And when the ACO called me to say, I I think I got one that you can walk. Not only did I walk him, but I took him home. Took him home. (laughs) Took him home. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining the show. You are now a friend of the Humane Roundup podcast. You may not feel the same, but we feel the same. We feel that Aww. way. We no, we we really appreciate your expertise and in, in getting this information out there. I think I don't want to speak for you, Bishop. I know you already kind of said it, but I think this is a great program. And anything that we can do to help our officers throughout the community, that's what's important, right? And so, as I said it before, I clearly have some um, bitterness towards certain people in this industry. And it shows, and I don't mean that to be like rude, but ego takes and consumes so much of people. Like, be, I think you should be open to change and open to opportunities that are just going to help the situation more. And that's that's my viewpoint on it. And so, I apologize to our listeners if my bitterness comes across as un. What's the word, Bishop? Unfavorable. Yeah, whatever. Or something. An just ego of your own. Because I'm bitter. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, it, but. <laughs> It is what it is. Like the the reality of it is this, like we've all been through some ups and downs in this career and this profession. And I wish I would have had an advocate in certain cases that either were thrown out because, well, they tried their hardest or, uh, or they're, you know, they're, they're just young this. and I don't want to see it on your record. Or, or we had one talk about this one before you go, we had, we had a public defender take his dog to a dog park uh, on a hot summer day and then bring his dog somewhere and leave it in a car on a hot summer day. Mm. And the dog was moments from death before we removed it from the car. And then, uh, and then the attorney, the city attorney at the time called me and was like, Hey, um, I want to do, um, what did he do? Did he, he didn't even do a deferred. He did, uh, I think he just dismissed the entire case. Yeah. He was like, well, I just want to show some professional care. I'm like, that's the person that needs to be held accountable. Like they have mm-hmm. the general like common sense and experience to not do stuff like this. So like having an advocate in that moment would have been so beneficial. <sighs> yeah. Okay. I'm off my horse. <laughs> no, you're Jessica, not. do you, do you have anything, <laughs> do you have anything for the show for our listeners before we go? No, I just want to encourage people who are interested in CAPS to reach out and contact me and I'll do what I can to to help and support even legislative efforts. And I just want to thank you and your audience for, for listening to me today. Absolutely. We, we love hearing from you. And, you know, you're, again, you're a, fa- you're a fan. Wow, I can't talk. A friend of the show. <laughs> what happened to me, Bishop? Uh, your mom dropped you in her head. I don't know, because this has been an ongoing thing forever. <laughs> Whatever. Thanks for listening. Check out our website. Our website is humanemain.com. Our main goal is to keep it humane. Main. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Check